All right, so take your Bibles, and uh, we are on Bearing Fruit, the second part of the message from last week. And if you're newer visiting this morning, welcome. Hope it feels like home to you. You can download from our site um, last week's message and the ones before it. So if you want to catch up, you can do that. But we started with this verse last week, and I want to continue on with it because it connects the two uh, messages together. It says, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing, just as it's been doing among you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. You know, for all the things that are against the gospel these days, the truth is the gospel is going out more today than it ever has in the history of the world. And the truth is more people are coming to Christ right now as we sit here than ever in the history of the world. So let's pray and ask God to be among us. Father, when we come and bear fruit, we know that we aren't necessarily fruitful ourselves, but we know you are, and we know that your word does not go out and come back void. And that's the great promise we are hanging our hat on this morning as we come before you and we ask that you would make us as a church family fruitful in the Mill Creek area. We believe you have a dream for Mill Creek. We believe you know who you want to reach, even if they don't want to be reached at this point. We know that you, we believe you know how to go after them, and we believe you know us well enough to know how to use us and when to bring us alongside appropriately personality and makeup and all um, for bearing fruit and cooperating with what you're trying to do. And that's our great hope. So as we go through this this morning, Lord, uh, give us hope that we can cooperate with you well. We believe and have, have publicly stated, Lord, that we believe this is a season of potential great fruitfulness because of what you took us through as a church. And we seek you that it would not just be words. May it be a reality. And may many come to Christ because of what you desire to do. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay. Last week we said that the goal, or just to kind of recap a little bit so we can catch up. The goal of the mission of the gospel is that it would bear fruit. That is the lifeblood of the whole thing. We said it's in its nature or it's in its DNA. It's its nucleus, so to speak, if you think of you know, atoms and that kind of stuff, the nucleus of it, it it's, that's its drive. So just like apple trees bear apples and grapevines produce grapes, so the gospel bear fruits. And we said there's two major ways that it bears fruit. One is to make the person who is rescued by the gospel, and that would be us, all right? We've been rescued by the gospel. We'd be more and more in the image of Jesus. And I think we would all admit that the more we become like Jesus, the better it is for all of us, right? <laughs> in our marriages, in our families, in our church, the more we become. And that, that has to do with changing us, changing our nature, changing our character, uh, revealing blind spots, right? It's, it's about us becoming more like Jesus and seeing it the way it should be. But the second way is the way we're going to talk about this morning is to have a person changed by the gospel, share that change with other people so they too can become rescued. And that's where it gets tricky, right? And immediately we can um, start getting full of fear or apprehension with this kind of message. But I would ask you, please don't do that this morning, okay? Uh, I, just listen and see if God isn't leading in a good way. So last week we focused on part one. This week we'll focus on part two. So when it says the gospel is bearing fruit all over the world, up here on this verse, what's it talking about? Well, it's talking about 
the fruit is lost people. Paul was uh, an evangelist by nature, evangelist by stride, all right? Paul, that, that's what he did. It was how he was purposed, and he did it with a vengeance. And he went all over the known world, leading people to Christ, creating small churches, putting elders in place, and starting up. And, and the letters we know now, which are famous, at one time were little itty-bitty startups, right? And they no more had the chance of survival than the man on the moon in some of the places they were planted. If you read the epistles, uh, Paul himself got beaten, whipped, and thrashed, and stoned, and left for dead in some of them. And so, but they bore fruit. This was Jesus's mission statement. I think you'll find that this is compatible to what we've been talking about. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Right? Now, our culture doesn't have under, any understanding of that today, but I would suggest to you that his mission statement has never changed. It has always been to seek and save that which is lost. Here's his purpose. The purpose of the gospel, the purpose of Jesus' life, why he came, why he died on the cross and rose again, was to seek and save that which was lost. Um, we just had an annual meeting. I think I mentioned this last week. It was in Monroe at our uh, sister church, Cascade, and they, they put on a, a great deal, and it was really fun. And I was so grateful for the speakers that they had at this one. Uh, Gary Rohrmeyer has been a church planter um, in our district and an executive for Converge USA for over the last 25 years. And then Scott Rideout was the lead, is the lead pastor of Sun Valley Church in Gilbert, Arizona. Some of you may be familiar with that church. And, uh, is the, and also was the former chairman of the board for Converge USA. And they were the speakers uh, at this event. And as God so often does in his divine timing and, and providence, uh, the topic for this morning and what was shared at the conference just dovetailed together like this. So uh, I'm going to shamelessly steal from Gary and Scott. All right, I just want you to know that straight up front. Because what they said is way better than the way I can say it. And... Um, and so I'm just going to steal from them. All right, so Gary and Scott, thank you. All right. Um, I've been coaching us as a team that we should be on the edge of our seats this fall with the expectation because when God prunes, he does so with the purpose. And the purpose is that we as a group of people would be more fruitful. All right. And so that means individually and corporately together, we would bear fruit. And we have said that this could be the greatest season of fruitfulness we've ever experienced as a church. What would, it, what would that look like when we say that? Well, it would look like people coming to Christ. That's what it would look like. This can be seen by looking at the other side of the coin as well. Uh, let's look at Jesus' call on the, on the disciples This was found in the Gospel of Mark. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. And Scott, right up, pointed out, thank you for that, Mark. We wouldn't have known that unless you included that. They were fishermen there, right? You didn't get that? Okay, that's funny. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. And at once they left their nets and followed him. Scott, uh, right out when he was talking about this passage, pointed out that this is really significant because when Jesus said this and he was talking, he didn't say, come follow me 
and I will make you religious. All right? That wasn't part of the call. He didn't say, hey, come follow me and I'll make you happy. Right? Now, there is joy in the Christian life, but if you got in the Christian life to be happy, you're going to be pretty disappointed, right? He didn't say, come, follow me, and I will make you Greek scholars. Although some of us are, and that's a good thing. That's not what the call is. He didn't say, come, follow me, and I'll make you popular. If you were in high school and junior high, bummer, right, Jake? (laughs) Come, follow me, and I will make you church people. No, he didn't say any of those things. He said what? Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now, remember, who's he talking to? fishermen and he said you know how to fish you've been on the water you've done it all your life you know what it's like to go in them i'm going to keep you fishing but i'm going to have you fish for something different you will no longer fish for fish now you're going to fish for people and i'll teach you how to do it fishers of men so to follow jesus you have to fish all right fishing for people in other words what scott said is followers fish If you're a follower, you fish. And if you look at it, this is the call of the disciples. Disciples, people say, well, we should be about discipleship. Yes, and what do disciples do? They fish. Jesus said, come follow me and I will make you, the disciples, fishers of men. In other words, here's the key point he pointed out. Found people, find people. All right? Found people, find people. And I think... If you think back to who led you to Christ, you would sense that analogy immediately, right? Because they were simply sharing what they had found. They were simply sharing what had been done for them. I'll never forget Stanley Kantz sitting in the cafe of Lake to Lake Dairy in Denmark, Wisconsin, saying, Steve, let me share with you what it's like to be a Christian. All six foot eight, 285 pounds of them, all right? And he has since gone on to be with the Lord and I look forward to meeting him in heaven and saying thank you. Gary Rohrmeyer pointed out something that was really kind of a shock for me. He said, the surveys, the recent surveys show that 89% of people 20 to 29, so think through that bracket, who you know in that bracket, and under are interested in having a spiritual conversation with someone. 89%, 20 to 29, are interested in having a spiritual conversation with someone. Scott uh, right out quoted Dale Peterson who stated this, the demand to know God in this generation now is greater than our capacity to reach Him. In other words, we can't get to Him fast enough. There's too many of them. Now, is that really true? Is that true in your world? Is that true in my world? I don't really know because I don't know where they pull all these statistics from. But I do know this. Jesus is still seeking lost people. And it doesn't matter how long you've known Him. If you're a follower, then you fish, right? And there's some differences between beginners and veterans. Uh, beginners don't know any better, right? And they blab, and they don't know what they're not supposed to say. And sometimes they can say things excruciatingly, painfully wrong, and yet be right all at the same time. It's just a bizarre thing. I look back to when I first shared Christ with people back home in Wisconsin, I cringe. I remembered the discussion. What were you thinking? But I didn't know any better. And all I knew is I had found Jesus and, and things had gotten flipped and it was just crazy. Now, part of the 
good thing of becoming a veteran is you get a little wiser. But one of the things they pointed out is once you've known the Lord for a while, your capacity to share Christ with other people diminishes because after a while, all the people you know are Christian. And so your circle's Christian, who you hang out with is Christian, and you're hanging out with found people. And they said you have to deliberately break through to find non-saved people because otherwise all you're ever talking with is Christians. And that's no more true than for me. My world is saturated with you. Okay? Meeting with you, counseling with you, organizing things for you, doing things for you. And I find myself in a wonderful Christian cocoon that becomes really deadly if the purpose is to fish. And so I have to make intentional strides to break up. And I can't tell you how difficult that is because my schedule like yours is very busy. I have a very set routine. I roll as I roll. And to jump out of that, it's really I have to put really intentional thought to it. Um, this week, I, uh, I was talking with uh, Andy Smith because he came, if you saw, there were some outstanding costumes, by the way, at the Harvest Carnival. But Andy and Margaret, if you didn't see them, they were killer, right? And those of you who saw them know what I'm talking about. But Andy came in as a biker dude, man, and it was really cool. And, I, and he comes up to me, he says, hey, dude, we should go to Bert's, Bert's Tavern. And I said, you know what? I had that idea this week is to go sit at Burt's Tavern and have lunch because I have driven by Burt's Tavern for 35 years. I have never gone in there once. Not even when we were next door behind the 7-Eleven for our office uh, did I walk over there. And I always thought I should go over there and just grab a sandwich or something and see who sits in Burt's Tavern because it's locals. And they've sat on the same bar stool for 35 years, right? And it's a little intimidating to walk into places that aren't your place. Now, have I ever gone there yet? No. Okay. Should I? Probably. Okay. I'll go grab Andy Smith in his biker uniform and away we'll go. All right. But I think you guys know that it's tough to break out of that routine that we, we fall in. But here's the point. Found people, find people. Now, here's something else they point out that really I thought was significant. Uh, and it it was kind of what I was looking for. One of the things they said was that the questions have changed. How many of you went through EE training, evangelism explosion? Several of us in the room, right? Okay, and the key question out of EE training was what? If you were to die tonight, right, would you find yourself in heaven? If you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? And that was a powerful question. Let me tell you, in the 70s and in the 80s, that question rocked the world. Because we still had a world of absolutes and people, uh, you know, connected with that end result kind of question. Um, that question really, if you ask it now, people go, I don't care. It's a different deal. It's changed. So Gary pointed out that not only have the questions changed, but so have the methods and approaches. Here's, here's how it's changed. See if you don't recognize these. All right. Here's uh, some of the paradigm shifts. So evangelism has shifted from event-driven to process-oriented. How many of you remember the Billy Graham crusades here in the Seattle area and went to the first one in the kingdom? And I know we did that and ran uh, on the second one. We came in with the youth group and ran on the field and did all this stuff. And it was a, an amazing thing. And some of you were involved in Go 90 when the, the games were here and, and all that kind of stuff. And we were used to event where if you could just get them there and you got them to the event, the event would 
find them. The vent would kick them over and they would come down at an altar call and respond. And he says it's changed from that kind of event thing to more of a process. It's much more of uh, people hanging with and being a part of long before they, they uh, come to Christ. In other words, people are doing what we do now. They are online shopping, right? And, and they're looking around and checking things out and what's the feel and tone of it. So it's more of a process. Right? Evangelism has moved from a combative approach to attractive posture, okay? If you don't accept Christ, you're going to hell. That goes over really well, <laughs> right? And we've learned that, so we've learned to just not say that. Now, can people still get saved with that? Absolutely, they still do, right? But is that work with the vast majority of people that you work with down in Seattle? No, not so much, right? And so it shifted from a combative approach more to an attractive posture. In other words, what makes Jesus attractive to people and what makes the message attractive? And we've, we've come more that way now. Instead of the get in your face, I've got the truth, you better make a decision now because it's on my table, not yours. The timetable has shifted to what's your timetable? What does it look like? Uh, the third one is evangelism has moved from a memorized monologue to a meaningful dialogue. And I like this one because back in the day, and I remember we did this and, and Kirk and I actually went on a missions trip to Mexico together and we had monologues that we memorized as we went to Mexico, as we went to uh, Utah and shared with Mormons, as we went to California. By the way, the wildest of that whole bunch were the Californians, right, Kirk? <laughs> and, uh, but you had monologues that you prepared ahead of time, you memorized, then you gave. And now it's with the dialogue. It's actually getting to know the person and getting into their world and finding out what are they into and having discussions with them and how to actually have those. That's where I think most of us are stuck. Okay, If I were to say in the message today, where are we stuck? It's this one right here. We really don't know sometimes how to have a meaningful dialogue. Uh, and evangelism moved from a short-term contract to a long-term relationship. Uh, it was for spiritual laws Here's the four spiritual laws, sign on the bottom line, come to church, you get baptized, you're in, right? And uh, now it's, it's become much more of a long-term relationship. How can I walk with you in your spiritual journey? There's also a difference in approach uh, here. Uh, what I've just said is it, it's gone from, used to be presentation, decision, and then assimilation, uh, many of us would remember uh, like promise keepers and you know all those events that were designed that way to bring people uh, to Christ. And then once they went to the kingdom, which is no longer there anymore, then they would come to your church and then they were tied in. Uh, where now the long-term sequence is say, what does that look like? This is what it looks like. Belonging, believing, and then becoming. And so in other words, what's working nowadays are, uh, I found out this is the rage in the country, uh, and we stumbled on it by accident, Pam and I, but block parties or uh, throwing your fire pit out in the driveway. We uh, take our cars, go park them out on the other street, throw our fire pit out, throw chairs around, and just start a fire, and our neighbors flock. All we got to do is have some, you know, Hershey candy bars, some marshmallows, and some graham crackers. And, and they flock, or one time we just cooked hot dogs and simple stuff, and people came and 
hung around and we had invited a couple of our Christian friends that were neighbors and stuff. And they just all hang in and talk for hours. It was like, wow. And, and that's what this is becoming is engaging. So one of the problems is that's hard for those of us who are church because we spend a lot of time at church. We don't spend so much time in our neighborhood. And I don't know about you, but once it gets gray and wet and gunky, um, we all go in our tunnels, right? And we don't come out till the sun starts coming back out in like late March, early April. And so if you actually see your neighbors during this time of year, it's a rare sighting, right? Oh, it's a neighbor. Take a picture, <laughs> right? Where in summer, they're hanging out all the time. Our street is full with like 40 kids in summer. The other day, the wind was blowing. Boy, wasn't that a wind? Woo, man. And uh, Matt and I are out. It's just me and Matt throwing the football. And there isn't this me, Matt, and the leaves, right? And you'd throw the ball in the bubble because the wind would take it. And it was, but there was nobody out. It was like a ghost town. I'm a little going, wow, Lord, how do we do this? So some of this is thinking that through. But here's the key idea. The key idea that they, uh, Gary has stumbled on is that everyone's on a spiritual journey. And if you can connect with where they are on that journey, it works. Gary's questions are, um, he says, you can ask people, do you believe people are on a spiritual journey? And he said, you'd be amazed at the response that you get. He says, or where are you in your spiritual journey? Two different ways you can ask it. But people actually get, he says, get into huge dialogues over that. Now, not all of it is, oh yeah, I'm, I'm seeking Jesus and I'm glad you asked, how could I know him? That's not how it all works. But they will talk about different ways that they have sought. You'll find out where they're coming from. You'll find out all kinds of ups and downs in their life and places where you can connect to. And so where are you on your spiritual journey? Now, here's the problem this morning. I ordered the packet that Gary has all right, and they were handed out at the conference, and it's really cool, and I was going to have one for each of you so you could look, and i go through it. They didn't get here in time, all right, so I don't have my illustration for this morning, so they'll get here this week, and we will have them for next week, and you can go through those and just look at, open them up and go, oh, got it, okay, so that's what it looks like, and um, what Gary does is he says, hey, would you look at this for a second? Where are you on this? And where would you like to be in six months to a year? And it's amazing. People go, well, I'm, I'm here, and I, I'd probably like to be here. What steps would you have to take to do that? And he says, you just get into conversations, and, and you way you roll. So we will have that, and we will be able to take a look at that, because I think it's a tool that makes, will make sense for us. It'll make sense for us at Northview. We'll go, that would work, right? And I want things that will work. Now, the other thing that um, you have to buck on this is fear versus faith, all right? Um, dealing with the fears, Gary says, you've got to deal with the fears that derail us. And right when it comes to evangelism, you probably already got a knot in your stomach and butterflies and like, I won't, you can't make me, ah, you know, kind of thing. Um, what are the fears? Well, here they are, right? Fear of saying the wrong thing, right? Ever, isn't it amazing how your mouth turns to jello? When you try and share Jesus, it's just an incredible thing. Or I think this is a bigger one, fear of rejection, right? I've got some good friends that I've cultivated some really great relationships with, and if I bring it up, that's the end of the friendship, and I don't, so I'm waiting for that time where it's right to bring it up, but it's never right 
to bring it up. And so I'm just terrified of being rejected and I just, I just can't do that, right? That's where we get stuck. And the third one is fear of failure, okay? Um, just fear of failure, fear of I will be a mess. They'll be in worse shape than when I started. I'll be in worse shape than when I started. And then I'll have to go to church and admit I'm a failure. And I don't mind being a failure as long as anybody doesn't know about it. It's okay. I can sit on Sunday and at least look right, right? But I don't want to be proven a failure. And this fear of failure is is a huge one. So one of the problems we have with the whole topic of evangelization and Jesus and the gospel is how polarizing it can be. We do not live in the Midwest. We do not live in New York. We live in Seattle, Washington, right? A rare liberal culture, if there ever was one. And the gospel uh, is a heated debate among our culture, and we know it. And so um, we just can get buried into this. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to avoid both extremes. The accept Christ or you go to hell, and the I'll never share anything because I, want to fa- I don't want to face failure, rejection, or that kind of stuff. And I want to try and hit the, the middle that says, um, let's pray that God does a work. And as he's doing that work, we are privileged to join him and to find the places where he is working and join him. We can face our fears. You guys know this here. I put it up here, though. It's a good rehearsal and a good reminder. We can face our fears by trusting in God's power to open hearts. It's God's job to open a heart, not ours. You cannot read the hearts of people. I cannot read your heart this morning. Only God can, and only God can open a heart. So it's not your responsibility. God assumes the responsibility, right? As Howard would say say in his book, The Velvet Covered Brick, God assumes the responsibility, right? It's not your job to open a heart. It's your job to find the hearts that God is opening. That's very helpful. Second thing, God's provision for right words. Some of the best arrow prayers in the Bible are prayers that are shot up. Uh, Look at Nehemiah, look at Daniel when they had to speak before the king. And it says, I quickly heaved a prayer to God for the right words to say, and then I spoke. And sometimes, God, just give me the right words. What are the right words? And uh, you can find some amazingly profound things come out of your mouth. Uh, Sometimes when I'm up here speaking, I go, where did that come from? That was brilliant. I should take notes on myself, okay? (laughs) It's like, and you just know that didn't come from you, all right? The same thing can happen for you when you're sharing if you just say, God, give me the words. And you go, wow, I had no idea you even knew that, right? Because there's scripture in you, there's life stories in you, there's illustrations in you that you have long forgotten about and haven't even thought about that God can bring to life in a moment's notice because it matches the person that you're talking to. And we have to count on that. And then the third thing is God's promise to give us the power we need when we do it, All right? Yes, we can be scared. I have never, ever once shared and not felt nervous in my stomach when I shared. But that doesn't mean I shouldn't have shared, right? It means I have to count on God to give me the power to share. So it's not our own strength. And if the person comes to Christ, it wasn't you who did it anyways. You happen to match the timing of when God was there. And boy, let me tell you, when that comes together, 
When that comes together and you're there and you see the kingdom born in another person, there is nothing like that on the face of the earth. Okay? And you will see God, the kingdom, Jesus, the gospel, scripture, everything in a completely different way because you will have seen the life born in that person. It's an amazing thing. Here's uh, two resources to help us in this uh, dialogue. And you say, well, Mitch, that sounds really intriguing. How do I do this dialogue thing? Well, I'll give you the the handout next week because it'll be here. But two books that, um, this one I just read, Spiritual Conversations, this is by Gary Rohrmeyer, Creating and Sustaining Without Being a Jerk, all right? Which, Which is a great title. In other words, how can I share without being a jerk is, is the title. And uh, this is here. Uh, it's a thin book. You can see it. But this walks through the whole thing of how do I discover another person's spiritual journey. And it's really a, a great read. I read it uh, in one afternoon because our, our phone lines went down this week. It was awesome. We could call you, but you couldn't call us. We loved it. <laughs> it was fabulous. It was so quiet. I got reading done. It was a great week. And then they fixed them. Um, but Spiritual Conversations takes you on that one. And you can see it's not thick. It's a good one. And then this one, I'm a quarter way through. And this one is a, was another guy at the conference. His name is Les Gertz. He's been a, a pastor and evangelist in our conference for 40 billion years, right? And uh, the guy's been around forever. But he wrote a book called Not Yet Christian, 10 Stages of a Spiritual Journey. And this whole book is on... How do you identify the stages that a person's in on their spiritual journey? And it's really a great read uh, because it gives you pinpoint ways to go, okay, what stages one to 10? And if you're tired of a person, where to be? And what his whole thing is how to ask good questions, how to ask right questions and how to salt questions so that the person can tell you where they're at. And uh, it's really well done. So I would highly recommend both of these to you. You can get them on Amazon. You can uh, find them. They're not expensive. But if you really wanted to engage on this, both of these uh, are delightful reads and well worth the time put into them. All right. So having said that, here's the question for this morning. You want to go fishing? want to go fishing what would it be like if every single one of us in the room right now led someone to christ in the next three months just think about the repercussion of that that would force us to make all kinds of changes we'd be we wouldn't be able to contain if each of us led someone to christ this room would not hold them not cool? That's a great problem to have. That would be a wonderful problem. May you bless me with that kind of administrative problem. I would love it. But do you want to go fishing? Scott Rideout has this quote. He says, God is looking for people who will leave the comfortableness of what is to embrace the discomfort of what should be. Let me read that again. It's a great quote, and it's not mine. God is looking for people who will leave the comfortableness of what is to embrace the discomfort of what should be. What should be in our neighbors, our friends, our family. 
If this is truly a season of fruitfulness, wouldn't it make sense that one of the ways we would see, could experience the manifest presence of God, would be in people coming to Christ? And wouldn't it make sense that if God were to lead people to himself, he would use his body, the church, to do it? And wouldn't it therefore be logical deduction that he would be looking for those who have a heart to cooperate with him and join him in what he's doing? In other words, God's saying, I'm doing a work. Who would be willing to join me? And like Isaiah going, here I am, Lord, use me. I would like us to have that attitude. Lord, if you're going to do a work in Mill Creek, we at Northview would like to join you. You know, the average church has 1.4 baptisms a year. Think about that. The average church has 1.4 baptisms a year. I don't know which part of the person they baptize in the point four, but one point four. Is that being fruitful? They were talking, Scott was telling in their church they had hundred and sixty-three baptisms in one night. Would that change the way you saw the kingdom? Would it change the way I see the kingdom? I'd be happy with ten. I'm not fussy, right? <laughs> 10 would be awesome. But I'm surely not happy with 1.4. I don't think the Lord is either. So as we think about this, I'm going to ask the guys to come forward as we serve communion. We're going to use this thought for communion <laughs> this morning. He uses a, Scott uses a football illustration. He says, you notice in football, and a lot of us will watch games say, you notice they always say, man, they're getting tired on defense, right? And once they point out the guys are on their hips and they're breathing, man, they're getting tired on defense. They've been on the field a long time. He says, you notice they always say that about defense. They never say that about offense. They never say, man, they're getting tired on offense because they've been out here the whole time. No, because they're scoring points and they're racking up the thing. They're killing them. They're loving it, right? But what do they say? They're always getting tired on defense. He says it takes a lot more effort. You get tired a lot easier if you're on defense. And he says the same is true with the church. If we're always on the defense, we are going to get tired really quickly. He said if we want energy, if we want momentum, then we've got to go on the offense. And I think there's some truth to that. The second thing he said I think is scarier. We can miss our opportunity to see God at work. Just because it's a potential season of fruitfulness doesn't mean it will happen and doesn't mean it's a given. And, and Scott used uh, this story in uh, Nehemiah. And if you have your Bibles, turn with me, would you? I know that's a little hard when you've got the juice and the bread in your hand. But Nehemiah chapter 3, they're talking about the building of the wall. Long story short, Nehemiah gets permission. He goes leaves the capital, heads towards Jerusalem. Jerusalem's a wreck, it's a ruin. It's been torn down, demolished. The gates have been burned and destroyed. The place is lying in a heap of ruins. They tried to rebuild it, but they ran into opposition, so they didn't do anything. And so it sat like that for 70 years. And you know what it looks like, a site like that looks like after 70 years, just looks like a debris field with weeds, right? And it looks like nothing. And so in this story, they, Nehemiah comes up with, let's rebuild the wall. And in this, you have two different types of people that rebuild the wall that I think are worth us looking at, at this morning. In verse 3, it says, 
the fish gates was rebuilt by Hassanath, and they laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. And Merath, the son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. I love these names. Next to him was Shalom, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshebelbel, who made repairs. Next to him was Zadok, the son of Banna, also made repairs. Then here's a quote. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa. But their nobles, in other words, their leaders, their prominent men, would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. In other words, they had an attitude. They didn't want to pitch in. It was hard work. They, weren't, they were nobles. Right? We don't do that kind of dirty work. Then if you go over uh, it, further in the chapter and go to um, verse 12, it talks about Shalom, the son of Haloesh, who was a ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, in other words, a pretty significant guy, and he repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. Now, if you understand anything about that culture, sons were prominent, right? This guy had no sons. He is a significant ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, and he was in charge of repairing this section of the wall, so he took his daughters and all the people, and they rebuilt their section. So you have the, the men of Tekoa who wouldn't put their load to the work, and then you have Shalom, who rebuilt the wall with his daughters. And Scott points this out, and I think it's really, really significant. He says, can you imagine Shalom taking his granddaughter's hand when they're walking along and saying, Pops, tell us the story again how you and Mommy rebuilt this section of the wall? Right? And can, it says, can you imagine the grandchildren of Tekoa who are walking along looking at the rebuilt wall and the restored Jerusalem and going, tell me again, why weren't we part of this? Why, why didn't we do this? And Scott points out, he says, you know, that wall had lain in ruin for 70 years. They rebuilt that thing in 50 years. Two days. 52 days, less than two months. What had lain in ruins for 70 years was restored in less than two months because people decided to cooperate with God while He was doing something. You know, our country's been laying in ruin for quite a while itself, right? And a lot of it is like it's, it's destroyed, the gates are burned. It's done. We can't go over. You know, I found that a lot of the stories in the Bible say what takes man a long time to do doesn't take God a long time to fix. And the question is, are we going to be Tekoa or are we going to be Shalom? Are we going to rebuild our section of the wall? You know, we're not responsible for the whole wall. We're responsible for here. We're responsible for Northview and Mill Creek. But will we throw our shoulder into it? And will we cooperate? Or... Are we going to be too good for that? We don't do that kind of hard work. We don't do that sort of stuff. Are we going to be Shalom or Tekoa? And this morning, as we come to communion, and we ask this question, Jesus came to seek and save that which is lost. Are we, at least in our heart, willing to say, I'm willing to be on mission with you? I'm at least willing to ask, Lord, who are you looking for in my sphere of influence 
and my world? Who is it that you're trying to capture? Who's on a spiritual journey that I could come alongside? Could you point them out to me? Could you give me your eyes for that person? And when we come to communion, it's powerful because Jesus' mission wasn't uh, cheap. It didn't come without a cost. When Jesus said, I came to seek that which was lost, it cost him everything. Right? His body, that's a symbol, broken, shattered, shredded. He thought it was worth every single last whip that you would be found. Wouldn't that be worth praying about a revival that others who haven't been found yet get found? Jesus says, eat this in memory of me. When it comes to the cup, it represents the blood. The Bible says you have not yet come to the point of shedding your blood for the gospel. We might someday. But isn't it worth something to share with others what was shared with us at the incredible cost that it was shared? Now, can we learn the discussion? Can we learn to ask questions? Yes. But I found the biggest part is, Lord, I'm willing. Let me see my neighborhood. Let me see Mill Creek through your eyes. And I'm saying that as much for me as I'm saying that for you. Give us eyes to see what you see. You shed your blood for the sins of people. Are we on mission? If we are, Jesus says, drink this in memory of me. Father, we have asked that you would bear fruit among us. And... um, We have said that due to the nature of what you've been doing in the last year and a half in our body, this seems to us the season that that might break out. We put that before you in a most earnest way for people we love and care about and don't have a clue how to ask the right question. Lord, I pray that um, you'd help us with that. We pray that you would give us ways to do that. Pray for this pamphlet that it might be used by you in a, in a way, in a significant way. Pray that those who check out the books and read would find a way to ask questions and identify stages that people are on in their spiritual journey. But most of all, Lord, give us your eyes and your heart. Help us see people the way you see them. Help us to pray for people that they would uh, be stirred up in their spirit to be drawn in their spiritual journey towards you. And may we bear fruit, Lord, not because we're something special, but because you're something special. You are awesome, almighty, you're in us, and you can make us do things that are glorious and divine if we have a cooperative heart. We pray, Lord, that one day, the walls would be lined with people ready to do baptisms. That we would just celebrate and sing and worship and baptize those who have come to eternal life in you. Pray that we'd have a problem of not having enough chairs to seat everybody. 
pray that uh, we'd have the problem we can't watch our TV, favorite TV show because a friend wants to come over and ask questions about the gospel. Lord, we know you're the author and finisher of all of that. We don't ask it in fear. We ask it in hope, in faith. We pray for a great revival in this land, Lord. We pray that uh, you would make a turning that would, in a few months, erase the years and years of damage that have occurred. We lift that up to you with great hope this morning and ask this in your name. Amen.